Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Whit, professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the editor for A Better Peace. Thanks for joining us today. So in contemporary coverage of the American military, social and cultural issues, especially around sex, gender, and sexual orientation, are often in the headlines these days. But these topics and questions certainly aren't new. So today's podcast is going to take us back in time to 1976 to explore a specific story that helps illuminate these topics and that might have some relevance for us today. So joining me in the studio is Dr. Tanya Roth. She teaches history at Mary Institute Country Day School, a private school in St. Louis. She is the recent recipient of the Edward M. Kaufman First Manuscript Prize, awarded by the Society for Military History, for an outstanding book manuscript in the field. Her work examines the integration of women into the U.S. military during the Cold War. So Tanya, welcome to War Room. Thanks for having me. All right, so we're going to start off with a sort of scene-setting question, which is, as a historian, can you put us in your magic like time travel machine and take us back to 1976 and tell our listeners a little bit about the status of women in the U.S. Army and sort of the state of play in 1976. Absolutely. Uh, the 70s are a really interesting time because this is when outside the military you have the Equal Rights Amendment has passed Congress. There's a lot of conversation outside the military about women's rights and what rights should women have. And by 1976, there are only two years left in the Women's Army Corps. A couple years later, they'll disband as part of a larger movement to integrate women more fully into the military, in theory, at least, anyway. But 1976 was also the year they first started admitting women to West Point and the service academies. And so Congress and leaders in the military are really thinking in new ways about what role should women play. They've been supporting partners for a long time, doing a lot of clerical work or transport jobs, miscellaneous things that Lots of men did, but were very safe away from the front lines. No more weapons, although that's changing in the 70s as well. They're going back to weapons training. They're starting to look more like the way we think of military women today. Okay, so that's a period of transition, right? Exactly. So transition to an all-volunteer force. Bingo. Rethinking about how the Army and how the military more broadly is really staffed. Uh, and the people power, the person power required... To, to do those jobs. Exactly. And one of the a lot of the conversations revolve specifically around women's gender, which hasn't been as at the fore as you might think for a long time. But in the 70s, they start saying, okay, it's all right if mothers stay in service. You don't have to leave if you're pregnant or become a mother. You can stay in the military for a little while at least. They're mm -hmm. playing with that. The big limiter still is homosexuality. They still do not want anything to do with women who are perceived to be homosexual, uh, and uh, that's a big no-no. Okay, and so that's gonna that's a big no-no on the on for men, exactly as, as well. So questions about gender and sexuality are sort of intertwined, um, and then for women, it seems like maybe there's a double sort of burden about how they perform sort of femininity, um, their identity as women in the in the military as, as part of the Women's Army Corps, 
Correct. Um, their gender identity is sort of central Correct. To, to who they are. Yes. And that began back in World War II with the earliest efforts to really bring women into the military as full partners, not just auxiliary members, but actual military members. And through the 50s and the 60s, you see all the recruiting materials, the training manuals really emphasize that women should be feminine. They teach them how to do their hair. The Marine Corps has its own brand of lipstick that matches the brim of the hat. They're doing everything they can to teach women. They assume that women come in still needing to know what it means to be a proper lady. And they will teach you how to do that, but how to dress, how to walk, how to comport yourself in general, mm-hmm. how to behave with members of the opposite sex, you name it, even how to apply eyeshadow. And so that's I just been I happening for a long time. I could too, actually. Options. It was um, really helpful reading some of these manuals. <laughs> <laughs> so if we if we understand the, imp- this, the sort of centrality of gender identity to the, the way the army is, is sort of structuring um, what men and women can do, right? The, the uniforms are based on this sort of binary divide, the training, the jobs you can do. So gender identity is really central. Correct. We know that sexual orientation and, and um, is, is not unrelated to, to gender, right. but it is a separate sort of category from that. And we know that homosexuality or bisexuality is forbidden, at least in official circles at the same time we know that lesbian and gay people have and bisexual people have been in fact serving in the u.s military for a long time so how do how do gay and lesbian identified members of the military sort of manage in in the 1970s what do they do it's it's tough um for the past 25 years or so the military had kept things if we go back to the 1950s and during the red scare there was also the lavender scare that ousted uh gay and lesbian uh, personnel from the state department and similar things happened in the armed forces as well so uh there haven't been any big witch hunts in the early 70s yet there would be one in the late 70s when women started serving on ships in the navy um in the 50s, there was a rather large witch hunt in the Women's Army Corps, or the WAC. But it's become a thing where if you are gay or lesbian, you kind of serve underground. I I kind of wonder sometimes if this might be the roots of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, that for so long, gay and lesbian servicemen and women were just kind of there if they could get under the radar. Um, there are cases of some lesbian personnel who lied on their application, said, oh, I'm heterosexual, served for years and years, and came out much, much later. Others that were occasionally found out. But there wasn't any concerted effort to go looking for mm-hmm. men and women who were gay or lesbian at the time. It's just sort of, let them let be. Um, I, this, there's a sense that there are probably lesbian women there, but nobody's looking too hard and they don't want to. Not asking, literally not asking literally. too many questions. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a sort of tacit assumption, tacit knowledge, but not something that's sort of at the forefront Correct. Of, of policy or discussions. Correct. Their hope is that they're, they're identifying those quote-unquote problems during the recruiting process and avoiding women who might come off in the recruiting process as too butch or too masculine in any way or maybe have a, back, a background mm-hmm. that looks iffy, just as they would do with a girl who might have gotten pregnant out of wedlock or had a questionable sexual history. They're trying to root that out before they come in for practical reasons along with just their their moralistic reasons that they've created at the time because they don't want the money that goes into mm-hmm. discharges either. Sure. 
All right. So if that's the sort of state of things for women in the 1970s, and so let's let's sort of dive into this specific story. And this will be the first time I've heard this as well. So I guess there's a specific woman yes. um, who's going to be at the at the center of it. So tell yes. us about her and and her sort of life and, and career. Yes. I came across this in the National Archives years ago, and it was in a folder marked WAC marriage case. as in Women's Army Corps marriage case. And I thought, okay, this is odd. What is it? And it centers in 1976 on um, WAC specialist for Marie Sode, S-O-D-E. I think that's how she said her name. Uh, she married Christian von Hofburg. They got married in a civil ceremony in Alabama. Christian von Hofburg looked like a man, dressed like a man, talked like a man. Nobody thought anything of it until Christian came to the Army base to start collecting benefits as a spouse, because that's another new change. They've started allowing benefits for uh, for male for male spouses, male spouses in, the, in that in that decade. Um, Marie and Christian had gotten married in an Alabama civil ceremony late in 1976. Christian gets recognized as, oh, wait, didn't you used to be Linda? <laughs> uh, which I can only imagine must have been a really interesting experience in the 1970s, um, especially on an Army base, to see somebody who is now looking very masculine and male and not identifying at all as what Who's been living expected. out in the world as yes, Christian, right? Yes, no longer in the Women's Army Corps, absolutely out of it, but now married to members of the Women's Army Corps. Um, they, in the process of investigating this case, the military officials went back to the Alabama judge who married them. And I find it really interesting, it's Alabama, which I think it was a very conservative southern state where uh, this is not the sort of thing that would probably fly anywhere at the time, but I feel like much less in the south. But the judge who officiated the wedding said he didn't know that the groom wasn't male. When they showed up, they looked like any normal couple. No problems at all. Married them, and that was that. Right. Um, so legally, they were married as a man and woman. There was no ability. There was no way to counter that charge. It was. It was not a case of what we would think of as gay marriage or what they thought of at the time. And this is a time when gay marriage as a concept isn't really being discussed right. yet. The gay movement is so young at the time. She said, "Yeah, I, I didn't know. Looks like a man to me." Um, yeah, I mean, so the, it brings into question all of the sort of assumptions about appearance, about right. what are the requirements um, for civil marriage. Absolutely. Uh, what you know, what power is entrusted to judges and 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 judgment, right? Right. Uh, and what and how people present themselves and and how the world sort of sees them. Um, so, in, I mean, in some ways, it it feels like ahead of its it does time that there's you know there's no exam there's no like biology no lesson that has to happen and then i i've never really thought about the question of identification how did you what kind of identification did you have to show to get married if any right <laughs> it's a real raises really interesting questions uh and the law the assistant district attorney said that according to mil to alabama state law the law only requires that both parties be consenting adults there wasn't even language in the alabama law that said you had to be male and female it was just consenting adults, which tells us something about the assumptions at the time, that nobody would imagine that you would have two members of the same biological sex getting married at all. It's just two consenting adults. All right, so what, what happens next? This is where it gets confusing. So for most people accused of homosexuality, which is what the Women's Army Corps accused um, 
uh, Marie of because Marie was the only one still in the military, the only one they could really do anything with. They accused her of homosexuality, which she denied. She said, I'm married to a man. Christian's a man. Christian was taking hormone therapy and planning to undergo a sex change operation. So according to the couple, there's nothing unusual here. I am not a lesbian. This is my husband, and that's all there is to it. Uh, but the military said, no, 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 no. You're both women. We have to treat this as if it's a homosexuality case. Um, they, the the army said, no, we're just going to accuse you of having latent homosexual te- tendencies. Um, they didn't even address the fact that the couple said, no, we're a heterosexual couple. And, and that was their, their approach. Um, the state of Alabama didn't do anything. They're like, it's a legal marriage. Right. They, I don't even know if there was any precedent at the time for countering that, but Alabama had no interest in pursuing it. In pursuing this. it, because no. there's no, there, I mean, it's hard to come up with a sort of state interest right. in intervening. What do you what do you think? Is there any evidence about what the army thought its interests were? That's a good question. Uh, I think it comes down to benefits in a lot of ways because if also it's just really confusing because if you for them at the time if you recognize this as legal marriage, it flew it would fly in the face of all their policy because. I think there was no precedent for this. I, I'm, I mean, we can think about back in the Civil War, women cross-dressing as men to serve in the military, right? That's not new to have a woman uh, appearing as a man, presenting as a man. But to have a woman presenting as a man and legally getting married and then seeking benefits from the U.S. government because their spouse is in the armed forces, it seems like it's just breaking all these grounds that they just... I think it just was mind-boggling to them. Do you think? Do you think that part of part of their confusion or concern was that Christian had been a member of the Women's Army I Corps? I think so. That this, I mean, on the one hand, then you have this case of, well, wait, how do we not identify this? And if the story gets out, what does this do for our reputation? Because the reputation was always such a big deal for the Women's Army Corps. Um, and it didn't hit national stage, from what I can tell. It hits a couple newspapers here and there, but it's really hard to find a lot of information on what happened. Um, the army just pursued her discharge on the grounds of homosexuality. That, I think, to them was the most straightforward. No, you are a lesbian. We don't allow lesbians. And so we're going to mm-hmm. do dishonorable discharge, which was or Section 8 discharge, this, what they were going for, which would have stripped Marie of all her benefits coming out of the military and been that all around. Sure. So... Is that is that in fact what ends up what ends up happening? No, this is where it gets oh, interesting. Man. Yeah, she gets discharged, <laughs> but she doesn't get the dishonorable discharge. She gets an honorable discharge, which uh, while there probably are cases of other women being discharged for homosexuality with an honorable discharge, most of them tend to be dishonorable discharges. Um, they, her commanding officer called her an above-average soldier who had not indicated any homosexual leanings. Because she's not. She's not. <laughs> yes, that's the thing, right? Um, and, but to the Army, they say that any homosexual sexual, uh, tendencies seriously impair the discipline, good order, morale, and security of a military right. unit. Just, nothing bad has happened, right? They, I think they're just flummoxed. I even found an article, a popular press article, that suggested something about the couple's marijuana use, which has nothing to do with anything, but it seemed to be just grasping at straws to get anything they could 
to say, oh, well, maybe there's something this isn't, fishy this here. This isn't the, who we want exactly in the in the army. Yes, I think that's what it comes down to. We don't want people like this in, in right. the army. Um, so she gets discharged honorably, and and that's and do, that. do they do they just are they able to like go about their lives? Do we have any idea what happens to them? To what I can after? tell, I think they just go about their lives. Um, I've tried to do a little digging past that. They just sort of fade into. Obscurity. I found a few names that I haven't quite been brave enough to reach out to. If I'm honest, like, oh, is that is that the person? Should I look into mm-hmm. that? Um, but there's nothing really there. So, the, so her military career comes Over. to a comes to a close. Right. Um, so no spousal benefits, things like that. But uh, the honorable discharge is 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 not yes. going to be a sort of black mark correct uh, for her as she as she continues on in civilian yeah in civilian life all right so this i'm i'm totally fascinated i have so many like there's so many right. things sort of running through <laughs> running through my mind but let's let's think about what this story from 1976 um might have to to tell us by way of questions or, or things to think about when um when we imagine the world that we inhabit today yes. and, and so it's 2019 <laughs> but we know that over the past uh decade there's been major movement on the on issues related to sex gender sexual orientation and identity um a- across the board and we've seen um depending on who you talk to forwards and backwards progress will we'll sort of People, what people think of as forwards or backwards might might change, but we've seen some ebb and flow in terms of policies, in terms of um, the integration of women, the the repeal of "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," the inclusion of transgender troops, um, fully in, or openly transgender troops into the into the military, and these are still things that are being adjudicated, dealt with. There's no, I think, firm answers. Right. Still, so what are some of the things that this story from 1976 might prompt us to think about when it comes to current policies around issues of sex, gender, and identity? I, th- I think one of the big things to think about is that I think a lot of times Americans and uh, maybe civilians in particular who don't have necessarily close relations to the military look at um, discussions of, oh, women in combat or, oh, gay lesbian troops or transgender, and they just, they don't know what to do with that because a lot of people just have the image in their head of somebody going off to war with a gun still. I think even despite all the international conflicts in the last 25, 30 years, a lot of Americans just still think World War II movies, right? And and they still can't imagine, even though women are everywhere in society in the workforce, we've had women running for president, we have more women in Congress than ever, it may be okay to think about a woman in Congress, right, but a woman with a gun still is a little scary, even more so um, when you think of an environment that has such masculine connotations still, like the military, having people there who don't fit the neat binary. I think I think for a lot of people, binary, binary ideas of gender and sexuality are still, quote unquote, the norm, especially in... That rural. people are male or female, exactly. gay or straight, men it's, and women, that these are that these right. are binary categories. And it's really hard. It's uh, especially, like, you know, I teach high schoolers, and I see some of them can start to understand this, that gender is, is not binary, it's more fluid. They start to see their peers who are more comfortable coming out as queer or... Uh, transgender but 
for a lot of Americans, I don't think they see that. And when your life is lived in little boxes of binary experiences of gender, it just gets really confusing in a lot of ways, something hard to wrap your head around. It's not really that hard, but if it's something that's so foreign to you, it just, oh, oh, scary. Well, the, the military is a particularly ill-suited place for some of this. Right. Uh, like we, we talked a little bit, right, about uniforms, performances of femininity and masculinity, um, right, physical fitness standards. Yes. Are, the, the army is sort of moving away from gender norm standards. But all of these things are, are couched on the premise that you are a man or, right. a, or a woman, that you have to fit into one of those one of those categories and crossing between those categories um, or sort of in the, in the boundaries or the borders is, is something that the military isn't in terms of policy really equipped well to deal with. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it's, I mean, military service is supposed to be about protecting the country, right? In a general sense. And we think of that, then people's sexual behaviors in theory shouldn't come into that. But the reality is that the military is made up of men and women whose behaviors have impacts on that experience all the time and in all ways and in all conflicts, whether it's sexual behavior or just other interactions. Um, So it gets messy that uh, I think for the military in 1976, trying to figure out how to deal with this case of uh, a woman marrying a transgender person, they just, I don't, they can't even wrap their head around that. And so then what does that mean? If you accept that, if you let a woman stay in the military married to a transgender man, then what sort of floodgate will that open? Does that mean that, you know, when they start in those early days thinking about, well, wait, if homosexuality isn't a psychiatric disorder, if we ever did start letting gay men and women serve, then then it's when you start talking about people's sexual orientation, then it gets to questions of their sexual behavior, which, well, we're not in the military to have sex, so why are we even thinking? It just mm-hmm. gets... It reminds them that, oh, wait, maybe there's more that goes on behind the doors than just shooting your gun and looking for the enemy. And maybe it doesn't. And then, like you said, because she was a model soldier, yes. maybe it doesn't have an impact right. on performance, on effectiveness, all of the all of the things that sometimes get associated with, with sort of these questions about social and cultural um, questions from maybe the outside world. In and so I think this idea that that it's messy is is really important and it remains messy now, um, but certainly it wasn't it wasn't neat and right. unmessy twenty five years ago thirty years right. ago like oh gosh we're like forty years ago yeah now and, <laughs> um, from and, from then and the back then it's just a question of spouse benefits like getting your food on base or getting health insurance benefits now. If you know if you are transgender, does that mean you get your hormone replacement treatments taken care of? Your medical things that forty some years ago, yes, Christian von Hofberg was certainly engaging in those medical services, but very rare at that time. It's more common today, and then taxpayers who don't understand it go, "Oh, I don't want to pay for that. Right. Why should I pay for that?" But if you understand gender fluidity, then I think it's easier to go, "Well, why not?" Um, you know, my medical benefits that I get pay for what I need. Everybody's got different needs. But it's just the messiness that yeah. people don't understand. But if it's going to make, if we're going to get the best people to do the best job to make the best military, then we shouldn't be worried about questions of gender identity or sexual behavior. But 
Yeah. Maybe we think more about sex than we like to admit. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we think about it uh, pretty pretty consistently uh, throughout throughout history. Yeah. Um, certainly, it affects again. Like these aren't these aren't new questions. No. The policies um, and the the sort of lag between social and cultural understandings and yeah. policy seems seems important as well. And then figuring out what do you do when your policy is inadequate to address um, whatever sort of whatever situation yes. is in front of you. Uh, these are, these are, I think, important questions for military professionals and for, for civilians who are sort of in and around uh, the national security space and the defense space to think about as well. And it brings in all sorts of questions about civil military relations yes. um, in the, in the broadest sense of the word, not at necessarily high level politics, right. but in the relationship between the society and the military that, that protects it. Um, so Tanya, thanks so much for joining me today on war. And this has been a really fascinating uh, story and a really fascinating conversation. I think it's given, it'll give us a lot of food for thought. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.